Uh, Let's go ahead and open in prayer and we'll start. Father, we thank you for the chance we have to gather uh, today to worship you and to be uh, strengthened by the ministry of the word. We thank you for the fellowship we have with one another. We thank you for the freedoms we have in our country to assemble without fear from government intervention. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the chance we have to study this vital topic. Pray that you would guide me as I lead and all of us as we think together and talk together on uh, Christ and culture. We pray that you would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it's good to see all of you. Uh, this is uh, going to be an exciting study. I think we're, we're not going to have enough time to do everything that I want to do, whether either today or uh, any of these weeks, but I hope to at least whet your appetite on the question of Christ and culture. Um, someone once said, uh, or asked the question, does a fish know that it's wet? Or another way of saying that is, if uh, whoever it was that, in, that discovered water, it wasn't a fish. All right, so what is that concept? Does a fish know it's wet? What does that have to do with this topic of Christ and culture? Fantastic. So the, the idea of the fish is unawareness. The fish isn't aware of his environment, and then you use the word numbness. Okay, anyone else on this? idea, the fact that we, we can be surrounded by culture but not really understand it. Any other thoughts on this? What's the problem with that, unawareness or numbness? All right, well, I, I think, and I share with you all of these same concerns, but the tendency in every case is to see culture as negative, as dangerous, something we've got to be aware of and, and be guarded against. But I think what we're going to find is that that is maybe too narrow a definition of culture, and we want to try to broaden a bit. I want to read a quote in one of the books I studied, and then we're going to uh, get into the topic of culture itself. Michael Horton, in in a book that he wrote uh, relevant to Christ and culture, said this, It was confusing to grow up singing both, This world is not my home, and this is my father's world. So it's like, well, which is it? (laughs) Okay? Uh, Those hymns embody two common and seemingly contradictory Christian responses to culture. One sees the world as a wasteland of godlessness with which Christians should have as little as possible to do. The other regards cultural transformation as virtually identical to kingdom activity. So therein lies some of the challenge. So as I was meditating on this topic, I started thinking about the way I bump into the word culture, the way I think about it or the way that I've heard it used or that I myself have used it, and it kind of coalesced into three headings that really are different from one another. One of them I've heard a lot over the last five years and more is culture wars, culture wars. Have you heard that term? Have you you bumped into that, the concept of culture wars? What does that mean, culture wars? There's a great contest going on in our society between conflicting worldviews and, uh, you know, we're at war with them or hostile to them. What about the term, terms like, like a culture museum or high culture or a cultured person? All right? What does that mean? What's that use of, of uh, the word culture? Art, sciences, music, broke music, you know, reading, you know, classics rather than the latest paperback novel kind of thing, you know, just being a cultured person. Uh, when I was in Japan, there was a place called Bunkunomori, which translated as, is forest, woods of culture. And you'd go there, it was a Japanese culture museum having to do with, you know, arts, just different aspects of, of their culture. Uh, not seen to be an evil thing, just some a development of, of uh, Japanese culture. And then, how about this term, cross-cultural missions. If you've had anything to do with missions, You understand uh, that, and that's, again, a different kind of use of the word culture, cross-cultural missions. And so missionaries, when they go into a culture, uh, into a a nation or a place, unreached people group, they're going to study not only the language, but they're going to study the culture. They would not be well served by seeing it as a culture war initially or generally, they are generally going to try to find what aspects of, of the native or national culture they can appropriate and appropriate them so that they can win people to Christ. So these are very, very different uses of the word culture. So let's walk through them in a, in a little more detail. Culture wars, 
possibly why many of you are here today, uh, a sense of the encroaching danger of forces hostile to Christianity in our country, crowding us more and more, making the future seem dark. Uh, along with this are our fears of a loss of Christian privileges or a Christian assumption. For example, we are a Christian nation, this kind of thing, which has been openly said until relatively recently. The last 25, 30 years, not said hardly at all, but uh, presidents, others openly have said it uh, in the 20th century. Um, but a concern about this, concern of loss of that. Uh, also, a loss of core freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, because of the rising militancy of left-wing activists who openly deride some of these freedoms because they so fiercely believe in their own perspectives and consider any dissent to be evil and will shut down any dissent vigorously. So some openly speak against the, the benefits of freedom of speech. They don't see it as a good thing. Uh, rising governmental power hostile to some key convictions, uh, being forced to agree to things that we find wicked in order to keep our jobs. For example, the Gay Pride Month thing, if you work for a secular company and you're forced to do certain things that would violate your conscience in order to keep your job, things like that, abortion rights, other things. So is the culture war real? Is it Christian to think this way? Is there a Christian alternative approach to these issues? Al Mohler, uh, this is kind of his home base, uh, I, I would say. He's good at a lot of things, but I think Christ and culture is one of his central themes. And in the briefing, quite, quite recently, August 23rd, 2022, he said this, Christians did not start the culture wars, but we cannot evade them. The imperative of Christian engagement for the good of society. That's the heading. That's what he said. Are we or are we not in the midst of what's described as a culture war? I'm just going to say simply, straightforwardly, undeniably, we are. Culture war explains much of what is going on in the world around us. It doesn't explain everything, but it explains why at the most fundamental level of our civilizational life, there is a war over what is true, what is beautiful, what is good, what should be moral, what is marriage, uh, what does it mean to be male and female, or does it mean anything that's objectively true? Now, we need to recognize that the term culture war is descriptive. It describes a fundamental struggle over the future of civilization, a struggle that is not merely the engagement of partisan politics, not merely an argument over national policy. It's an argument over reality, end quote. Moeller uh, goes on in, that, in the briefing to argue um, argues against views that would have Christians retreat or feel ashamed of any public square contentiousness as a bad witness. He argues that Christians actually have an obligation to their neighbors, whether their neighbors are Christian or not, to fight for what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. So he was arguing, he said, against a New York Times op-ed piece by Tish Harrison Warren, quote, the God I know is not a culture warrior, New York Times. Also, T.M. Moore in Culture Matters wrote, quote, aspects of culture disturb us or even threaten our well-being. Culture influences the way we view the world and the use we make of it. It shapes our outlooks and affections, facilitates our work, conveys our understanding and convictions, variously delights and edifies our troubles and dismays us and constitutes part of the legacy we leave, we'll leave for future generations. As a result, culture often divides us. But it can also serve as a meeting ground for common concerns. The ongoing culture wars remind us that as Christians, we cannot avoid the luxury of a studied indifference with respect to so potent a subject. Culture wars involves a series of hot-button issues and widely divergent perspectives on them, the increasingly hostile polarization of Western civilization, especially for us, America, on such issues as gender roles, gender itself, homosexuality, race relations, poverty, the environment, politics, religion in the public square, secularization, public education, abortion, etc. Hot-button issues. Two key concerns of Christians in this aspect of the word culture are, one, how can we be protected from the pollution of wicked culture? I think that was implied in some of your comments. And secondly, how can we retard the spread of wickedness through our society? These two verses capture those concerns. Could someone read 1 John 2, 15 and 16? Please use a big voice or in a big room. 
Very good. And uh, I'll read Matthew 5, 13 and 14. <clears throat> you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, it's pretty obvious from those two verses, if you think about it, the word world is being used differently in those two verses. Do you see that? They both have the word world. And if, and if you don't see it very clearly in Matthew 5, you'll definitely see it in John 3.16. For God so what? Love the world. So is he violating the, the, the very prescription given in 1 John 2? No, no, the word world is being used differently. Same word, different use. And so John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world, he's not using it the same way John uses it in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. That is the corrupt evil system run by Satan and demons, which is constantly opposing every aspect of God's truth at every point, coalescing in these three issues, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life, which are directly corrupting to the soul. You should not love that. So that's Satan's world system that pulls in those directions. Don't love that or anything in it. Stay away from it. So that implies the world in that sense is a great danger to our souls. We need to be protected from it. We need to be pure from it. That's biblical truth. But then you've got Jesus saying you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. That seems to be you're supposed to do a job here. And that job, the salt of the earth, if you think about it a little bit, salt being a preservative that works, I guess, chemically as a desiccant uh, in which uh, the water that would foster bacterial growth is removed from the meat so that it lasts longer. And salted pork, for example, can last a lot longer than, than unsalted meat. So you are the salt of the earth means you should be retarding evil. You should have an impact on the world such that because you're in it, the world is a less evil but it ain't possibly a better place, a, a more godly place, because you're in it. You are the light of the world, and I didn't light you up to hide you under a bowl. I instead want to put you up on a stand, and everyone can see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Um, so, you know, the one would say, let's retreat into an enclave, let's hide, let's pull up the ramp, ramp uh, the, the drawbridge, and get around the, and just protect ourselves. And the other would say, we've got to get out and about. We've got to influence. Right, well, which is it? How do, we, how do you do that? So those are the, some of the issues there. All right? Um, these verses imply a terrible danger from engagement to the world, but also a command to retard the spread of corruption and morality. All right, second use of the word uh, culture, high culture, a cultured person. Uh, this is not as common. I don't think it's something that many of us think. Think about some of you like going to art museums, and some people don't. I get it. Some, some of you like, you know classical music and some don't. I remember I was teaching a, a class at Southeastern and I was trying to show uh, the effect of Martin Luther on the development of music and the link between Martin Luther and Johann Sebastian Bach, which is very strong in Bach's mind. Obviously, Luther knew nothing about Bach. Um, but uh, the other way around, uh, as a Lutheran man, Bach wrote music to the glory of God. And so I played the climactic part of St. Matthew's Passion for my students and they were like not into it. And uh, I remember feeling like, all right, these guys don't like classical singing. You know, it's like, well, you know, that operatic kind of singing type thing. It's not an opera, but it was classical singing. And I was like, all right, note to self, don't do this again. Um, but I was trying to make a point, et cetera. But for me, it was beautiful. Other people, not so much. So what do you mean by high culture or cultured person? Well, this has to do with art, music, literature, science, philosophy, government, cuisine, uh, architecture as polished displays of progress over the centuries. What distinguished and advanced society from one that is primitive culture central to this is the arts or things that can be put in a culture museum as the highest expression of that per, uh, people's civilization from a christian point of view this is a display of common grace common grace so skills and talents and insights and intellectual achievements that flow from all humans uh, to varying degrees whether they acknowledge god or not simply because they are human and God has granted them insights that move the human experience to a higher level. Uh, the following verse gives a sense of positive admiration of craftsmanship developed in at least a half-Gentile man. All right, Second Chronicles 2. I am sending you 
Huram Abi, this is the king of Tyre that's saying this, Huram Abi, a man of great skill whose mother was from Dan, so he had a Jewish mother, but whose father was from Tyre, so a Gentile. He is trained to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, and with purple and blue and crimson yarn and fine linen. He is experienced in all kinds of engraving and can execute any design given to him. So that's a positive view of the arts, of sciences, of abilities. I will say this verse was very hard to find. For the most part, when the Bible talks about people's craftsmanship, they're always making idols. So generally the Bible is skeptical about people's artistic abilities, but just not universally. Furthermore, uh, when Moses was seeking craftsmen within the Jewish nation to come help make the various things needed for the priestly class, the, you know, the weaving, the skillful things, where do you think they learned their skills but in Egypt? And so there is an implication of pagan arts or skills, etc., that can be used for the service of God. Just hard to find because the Bible is much more concerned with idolatry and so therefore most of the time that craftsmanship is mentioned, it's usually in the formation of idols. All right, thirdly, cross-cultural missions. Any of you that have gone on a mission trip or have done any study toward missions will understand the significance of this term, cross-cultural missions. Uh, This is an awareness on the part of the messengers of the gospel that there are different cultures all over the world and that the messengers must do everything they can to fit into the receptor culture and make the gospel intelligible within that culture without compromising biblical standards. This gets to a more benign or neutral aspect of culture as having to do with uh, just way of life issues. The way a people has answered the basic questions of existence that we all have to answer. Language, customs, family rituals, birth, marriage, procreation, child rearing, food, clothing, shelter. These are things we all face all over the world just by being human. And people have answered those questions. What shall we eat? What shall we wear? In what will we live? How will we interact with each other when babies are born, when people want to get married, when people die? There are just different rituals that people have concocted, and they're different from each other, and they're interesting. Some of them are woven together with uh, paganism, animism, and all that, and our evil have to be rejected like widow burning uh, that William Carey found in India is overtly evil. But others are just the spices the Indian people put in their food uh, that were available in India but weren't available in England, decidedly not. Um, you know, that's why they imported so many spices to England because the food there is boiled potato. I'm not going to go into that, but, you know, they need some help. Um, but in India, they didn't, the spices were just everywhere, and so the food is different. It's not evil. It's just the way that they cook their food. Same thing with their clothing, within reason. Uh, architecture, this is just culture. It's the culture. All right, so coupled with this is an awareness that mixed into the receptor culture, I just said that, inevitably wicked. One thing I find, whenever I go off message and just start talking, I then find that I thought that when I wrote the outline, and then I say the same thing again, so there's just this redundancy. So if you see me look up and say, "Uh uh-oh, here he goes, and then he'll look down and discover, that's the very next thing he wrote when he was writing the thing. Anyway, there it is. Uh, Mixed into the receptor culture are inevitably wicked and dark aspects of false religion or corrupt worldviews that must be transformed into biblical norms at least in the lives of the converts to Christianity. Now, the best verse for this use of benign culture is, in the name of missions, is this, all right? 1 Corinthians 9. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some." What does it mean to become like a Jew in this paragraph? It would mean, when he says, I'm not under the law, uh, eating only kosher foods, for example. I mean, it really is in the meat, sac- meat sacrifice to idol section. 
1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, that those whole three chapters, meat sacrifice to idols. So on that topic of what you'll eat, when I was in a Jewish home, I acted like a Jewish person, even though I am not that way anymore. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, but not anymore. I've been set free from the ceremonial law. I know, now know I can eat pork if I want to, and the Lord will not be angry at me. But my fellow Jews don't think that way, and so when I'm eating with them, I'm going to fit into that. I'm not going to say contrary to what Jesus said, declaring all foods clean. I'm not going to contradict Jesus' teaching, but how I act, what I eat, I will fit in. I'll fit in. And then when I'm with the Gentiles, I'm going to fit into them. Again, if they're going to serve pork, I'll eat it. Whether I like it or not, I'll eat it. But I'm going to try to become like a Gentile to win the Gentiles. Again, he's not talking about, about visiting temple prostitutes. That would be immoral, wicked. But wherever he can, he's going to fit in. This has to do with cross-cultural missions. Do you see that? You're going to find things that you can appropriate in terms of your dress, your customs, habits that are not contrary to Scripture and use them so that you can win people. That's what he's saying. So that's cross-cultural missions. We will be uh, certainly walking through this passage in detail later, but this, uh, not later today, but later, God willing, in the course. But this captures the desire to use whatever there is in a receptor culture that doesn't compromise Christian conviction to make connections with lost people in that culture to win them to salvation in Christ. Now, these three uses of the word culture shows the challenge of our topic. Do you see that? Challenge. This is a challenging topic. And it's, it's big, and, and it just expanded to engulf all of my time over the last four weeks when I wasn't working on other things. Like, how much am I going to cover? How do, we, how do we put boundaries around this thing? It's not easy to do. But let's dig in. Let's uh, next just define culture. Define culture, all right? Here's various definitions I got from the books I was studying. Culture consists of patterns, explicit and implicit, of and for behavior, acquired and transmitted by symbols, constituting the distinctive achievement of human groups, including their embodiment in artifacts. The essential core of culture consists of traditional, that is historically derived and selected ideas, and especially their attached values. Culture systems may on the one hand be considered as products of action and on the other as conditioning of further action. Well, these are cultural anthropologists writing for a scholarly audience, hence the denseness of the, of the um, definition. But my guess is it's been well thought out and, hard, and is therefore very hard to understand. So you guys can chew on it all afternoon. I'm going to move on, all right? Culture is shared understandings made manifest in art and artifact. So unlike the first one, this is very simple, but it leaves a lot of things out. Leaves a lot of things out. But shared understandings made manifest in art and artifact. That's this guy, Robert Redfield. All right, next uh, quote from Clifford Gertz. Um, Culture denotes an historically transmitted pattern of meanings embodied in symbols, a system of inherited conceptions expressed in symbolic form by means of which men communicate, perpetuate, and develop their knowledge about and attitudes toward life. Okay? It's historically transmitted. It didn't pop up yesterday. We, in this culture, have been doing it a while. You're kind of born into it and learn the symbols. And those symbols are connected ultimately to life, attitudes about life, our life in this world. That's his definition of culture. All right, next definition from T.M. Moore in Culture Matters. Our culture is the artifacts, institutions, and conventions with which we surround ourselves that help us to define, sustain, and enrich our lives and experience. So artifacts, institutions, conventions uh, with which we surround ourselves. And, and it helps us to define, sustain, and enrich life. All right. Uh, now Niebuhr, who we're going to spend time with in a few minutes, uh, defines it this way. Culture is the artificial secondary environment which man superimposes on the natural It comprises language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes, and values. I think that's pretty helpful. The the list there is helpful. It's it's artificial. It's something we come up with. Nature's out there. We don't control that. There are storms. There are seasons. 
There are harvests. There's all that. We didn't do that. But we're relating to it in an an artificial or man-made sort of way historically, and we come up with symbols and artifacts and things like that to do that. So that's Niebuhr. According to Niebuhr, the essence of culture, quote, it is always social, that is bound up with human life and society. It is human achievement, presupposing purposiveness and effort. It is bound up with the world of values, which are dominantly thought to be for the good of man, and it is reflected in transient and perishing stuff. So that's art, artifacts, things like that. So, you know, those are the basic ingredients of culture, the elements of culture, so those bolded words there. Now, I went over to um, a missiologist to get what he thought culture was. So this, this is written for a missionary audience of, uh, and then perspectives on the World Christian Movement. So there's a whole section on, on culture. And so if you're training for missions, um, so this would be a missiologist's approach to culture. The term culture is the label anthropologists give to the structured customs and underlying worldview assumptions by which people govern their lives. Customs and worldview assumptions. Culture, including worldview, is a people's way of life, their design for living, their way of coping with their biological, physical, and social environment. It consists of learned, patterned assumptions, worldview, concepts and behavior, plus the resulting artifacts, material culture. All right, so that's a missiologist. Now, notice in his definition, he's very big on the concept of worldview, worldview. And so I'm working on next week's outline and about half done now, and that's going to be all about worldview. What is it? And so in the end, worldview ends up pretty dominant in the topic of culture. The symbols and artifacts don't mean much divorced from the worldview. What do they symbolize? What do they symbolize? And so we, we, we're surrounded by, by symbols, aren't we? There's one that, that I, I, I hesitate to mention it, but I don't mind spicing things up. All right, I'm going to spice things up. There's a Free Will Baptist Church uh, near us that has a flagpole in front of the church. And in that flagpole, there are two flags. There is the Stars and Stripes, the American flag, and there is the Christian flag. Have you ever heard of the Christian flag? It's got a white field and a cross and all that. It's got an interesting history to it. Uh, there's a long, 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 many centuries of Christianity that knew nothing about the Christian flag, but it came in in the Sunday school movement and all that. There is one flagpole. There are two flags. There's one flag above the other one. Any idea which flag is above the other one? The American flag's definitely above the Christian flag. I have two questions for the pastor or the leaders of that church. What do these two flags symbolize to you? And what does one flag being over the other symbolize to you? Just think about it. I'd rather the Christian flag weren't on the pole. But if it's going to be on the pole, I'd like it above the American flag. But that would tick people off who don't know what the the Christian flag is and don't give a rip about it. So what are they going to do? They're going to keep doing the same thing they've done as long as I've lived in that house. 24 years now, they're going to put the American flag above. But that's culture, isn't it? So, go ahead. Except that phrase, one nation under God. It's kind of problematic there, physically, like under. So you're right, but you don't get a chance to explain it and all that. Again, you can see why I would argue that you just take the Christian flag off because it's just not doing you much good. So what do you do on that? So like I said, I'm going to spice things up and you want to debate with me. Um, You know, we can do it. And again, I understand it. I understand it. But um, that's, that's a good example of symbols, of values, and the worldview behind it. Let's keep going. All right. Um, slightly different take. Uh, Kenneth Clark, uh, curator of Museum of Fine Arts at Oxford University, had a uh, TV series on PBS. Some of you will know what PBS is and others don't. Um, in 1969, um, called Civilization. The series focused on the contrast between civilization and barbarism. That would be his, his number one debate. Uh, What is the nature of civilization versus barbaric cultures? All right, quote, At certain epochs, man has felt something about himself. This guy's not a Christian. He's just uh, an art curator of a museum. At certain epochs, man has felt something about himself, body and spirit, which was outside the day-to-day struggle for existence and the night-to-night struggle with fear. And he has felt the need to develop these qualities of thought and feeling so they might approach as nearly as possible to the ideal of perfection, reason, justice, physical beauty, all of them in equilibrium. He has managed to satisfy this need in various ways, through myths, 
through dance and song, through systems of philosophy, and through the order he has imposed on the visible world. The children of his imagination are the expression of an ideal. So he's basically an art historian, and so you can see why you know, a sense of art behind what he's saying. People have expressed these views in their art. From the dust cover, it says, uh, the impulses, ideas, discoveries, and beliefs which have formed and nurtured Western civilization since the fall of the classical world are most powerfully revealed in its great works of art, its buildings, books, and, indivi and great individuals. These are revealed in the works of genius, sculpture and painting, in philosophy, poetry, and music, in science and in engineering, which... Uh, they produced. So, these achievements are a reflection of common grace, of the residual of the uh, image of God in all human beings. So, I mean, people go to Rome to see the Colosseum, among other things, right? They go to Greece and they look at the Parthenon. Christians can go to the Parthenon and, you know, if, you, if you're educated in the history of religions, you know it's complete pure paganism. Well, that's what it was, a pagan temple. Um, but still admiring the architecture to some degree, seeing the, the columns that have survived all this time, and just looking at that common grace, but in that case, in the service of paganism. Um, yet, Scripture puts a strong limit around these. Romans 1, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And then 1 Corinthians 1, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. All right, so let's walk through some basic biblical realities. To some degree, those two quotes I just gave you could have been under that heading. Um, some basic biblical realities. First of all, all things in heaven and on earth belong to Christ. They belong to him ultimately. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Secondly, all people belong to him. Ezekiel 18.4 says, every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son, both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. I said, it's a strong statement, the first part of that. Soul who sins is the one who will die, the soul who sins dies. Sin, death, death penalty, vital for our, our gospel. But the first part's interesting. Every person belongs to me. Now we know he doesn't mean that in an adoptive sense, like they're, they're all his adopted sons and daughters. What, he, what is he saying? He's saying, I made them. I crafted them in their mother's womb. They are mine. Every single person belongs to me. Or we could say is accountable to me because I made them. And then Paul says in Athens, in Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Oh, really? Using some pagan poets to preach the gospel. It's interesting, some residual common grace insight, but we are his offspring. That's him kind of using the altar to an unknown God to preach the gospel. He's not validating their religion, but he's saying, I noticed you had this in your culture, so I want to pick up on that. So, but there, what is he saying? In God, the creator, we live and move and have our being. Well, that's true, theologically. Every single solitary human being on the face of the earth lives and moves and has its being, biologically, essentially, in God. For apart from him, nothing exists. We know that, they don't know that. Atheists don't know that, whatever. They deny it, but we know it's true. Third, Christ has commanded us to make disciples of all nations, very familiar, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So, that's our ongoing command to do. Fourth, God wants us in the world to do that, among other things. Uh, he doesn't want us out of the world. All right. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, that would be interesting. It'd be like a constant kind of left-behind dynamic where someone comes to genuine faith in Christ and they're gone. They disappear. I mean, you'd be like, I would love that. It's like, well, your family wouldn't, you know, uh, et cetera. But, ah, but they're not saved yet. Well, your little, your little kids aren't saved yet. They kind of need you around. Anyway, there's all kinds of problems uh, with the whisked out of the world thing as much as you may desire it. But Jesus says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but you protect them 
from Satan. That's what he's saying. Um, or again, uh, in the uh, church discipline aspect, he says, uh, or, or portion of his epistle there, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. The implication is I don't want you to leave the world. I want you interacting with sexually immoral people and greedy people and swindlers. I want you in around them to win them. But now I'm talking about people who claim to be Christians, who are members of your church and they're living those wicked, immoral lives. That's a matter for church discipline. It says, with such a person, do not even eat. That's church discipline, right? But the implication for my purposes here is he doesn't, God doesn't want us taken out of the world. He wants us in about, milling around, interacting with lost people, right in the midst. That's the implication there in those two verses. Uh, fifth, Satan dominates this world. 1 John five nineteen. We know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world is under the control of the evil, evil one. And then Luke 4, 5 through 7, then the devil led him, uh, Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, I will give you all their authority and what? Splendor or glory. It's a very interesting statement there. Uh, in Matthew, it just says he showed him all the kings of the world and their splendor. All right, so uh, in Matthew's account, the, the account says it. In Luke's uh, uh, statement, Satan talks about it. So we think both happen. So the account tells us that's what he showed. What is the splendor or the glory? I think the more you ponder that word, you think about what's best uh, uh, as a display of common grace among the lost people of the world, like the glory that was Rome. The, the things that cause you to marvel at human ingenuity, technology, achievements, Satan's saying to Jesus, I'll give you all of that if you'll just bow down and worship me, all right? Um, I can give it to anyone I want to, so if you worship me, it'll all be yours. So here's the thing. Satan is using, he didn't give the common grace. That's something God did, but he uses it for his own purposes, his own glory, all right? Next. The world is, is mixed up with believers and non-believers living in close proximity. So this is the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. Jesus told them in another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Uh, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, and the weeds also appeared, the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And then as you continue, he separates the wheat from the chaff. So what that implies is that our root systems are almost completely intertwined here. I mean, we're going to share roads with lost people. I prove that every time that I go out and drive, all right? It's just fascinating the way some people drive. Fascinating the way I drive sometimes, all right? But we're, we're going to do roads together, we're going to do supermarkets together. We're going to do hospitals together. We're going to do institutions together. In our, in our country, in our political system, we're going to do politics together. And you're like, I don't want to. Well, <laughs> that's our system. And, you know, but we're going to do all this together. And it is God's will. It's not some accident. It's, it's what he intends. He, it's all mixed in. Furthermore, the implication is you can't tell the difference because we don't know who's elect and who isn't. And unconverted elect people act and talk and live just the same as unconverted non-elect people. They look the same. And so we just have to live together. And then in the course of time, some of them come out of that darkness into the light of the kingdom and they're saved and all that. As happened with the Thessalonians, he said, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, Holy Spirit, deep conviction. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So now we know you're elect because of what the gospel did. But before, you were just like all the other pagans. You looked the same. 
So they're all, we're, it's a mixed up world. We're going to live in it together. Next, God wants his church to be freed from the world's defilements. Revelation 18, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. A haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. And the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. All right, and then uh, 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And again, that 1 John 2 passage. So the world is dangerous. We are in some sense to come out from them and be separate while at the same time understand Jesus' prayer saying, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Most, most people just harmonize it with in the world but not of it. That's a common slogan you hear that harmonize both of these aspects. We're in the world. We're going to do supermarkets and roads and hospitals and all that. We're going to be working our, our jobs, surrounded by unbelievers, we're me in the world, but we're not of the world. That's the first John 2, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, etc. But these are all relevant themes with this topic. All right, now let's uh, do a taxonomy of ways that Christians have sought to do this in the past. All right, uh, how have Christians related to culture in the past? All right, and the key uh, guide for this is H. Richard Niebuhr, who in 1951 wrote a book called Christ and Culture. Seminal book, kind of set the groundworks uh, um, for this whole topic. Uh, Niebuhr uh, presented five types concerning the interaction of Christianity and culture. Niebuhr was uh, discussing effectively two sources of authority as they compete within a culture. Christ versus every other source of authority divested of Christ. So that's how he's understanding. It's very black-white Christ culture trying to understand two sources of authority. How do they relate? That's the way he understood the word. So let's look at the, at the five types. First, type one, Christ against culture. So again, this is what, how some Christians have done this in the past. Christ against culture. It sees the world outside uh, the church as hopelessly corrupted by sin. The kingdom of God comes to supersede it, currently in the purity of the church and ultimately in the messianic kingdom. God calls Christians, as we just quoted, to come out, uh, from among them and be separate, KJV, in communities of holiness. So Mennonites, Baptists, Christian brethren, Pentecostals, uh, most types of fundamentalists have, institu- have included individuals in congregations that fit this model. They're very, what we say, separatistic. And the ultimate example of this, my, my, uh, my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law and their family live in Lancaster County and you're just surrounded by Amish, you know, so I, I wouldn't say they're in the world. They're not of it, but they're not in it. Um, the problem is I don't, I don't know what their strategy is for reaching unreached people groups. I've not heard of anything. Mennonites have missionaries, um, but they're generally seen to be liberals, I think, by the Amish. They broke off some time ago in the free church movement, etc. But that would be a clear, famous separatistic approach to Christianity, um, etc. But Christ against culture. Type two, opposite extreme, Christ of culture. That sees a beautiful harmony between Christ and culture. Christians in this mode seek to discern and then champion the highest moral and spiritual common ground between the teachings of Christianity and the noblest values of contemporary culture. Evangelicals have manifested this type whenever we have closely associated God and country and assume that our nations are Christian or almost so that with enthusiasm and effort we can realize that ideal. So this especially happens when Christians have political control. Um, the clearest example would be so-called Christendom in the Middle Ages, like Charlemagne and all that, where the king claims to be a Christian um, and then just tries to run everything in culture by his view of Christianity, etc. So there wouldn't be any separation at all. It's just a Christian kingdom, so to speak. Um, in, that would be in Europe, post-Constantine, uh, post-Constantine. 
Christ of culture. And then uh, in between these two extremes are mediating positions, three mediating positions. Type three, Christ above culture. All that is good in human culture is a gift from God. But to be fully realized, this good requires Christian revelation and the mediation of the church. Uh, Thus, for example, uh, Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, their insights can be received joyfully by the Christian, even as they are recognized as needing Christian theology to fulfill them. Many Christian thinkers have have derived much from Plato and and saw him as an ally to Christianity. Um, Augustine would be an example of this, who then came over into more pure Christian sense, but some would argue he never really got free from Neoplatonic ideas. Um, Aristotle then came in later to kind of correct some of the Plato stuff, et cetera. That, there's a history of that. But both of those views sees what can we get from Plato and Aristotle that will help us. Uh, this view is uncommon among evangelicals, but not altogether unknown. Consider, for example, evangelical missionaries who emphasize anticipation of Christian revelation in the beliefs of non-Christian peoples. Evangelical intellectuals who affirm the essential congeniality of the gospel of this or that non-Christian author as the apologists of the early church uh, allied themselves with Plato, as I just said. All right, type four, Christ transforming culture. The most common mediating position in evangelical circles, all right? Christ transforming culture. So this would be anybody who's not just pure separatist, come out and be separate, culture's bad, we gotta stay away from it. So most Christians that aren't in that category would be in this type. Puritans in 17th century England, uh, Puritans in 18th century New England, 19th century North American revivalists trying both to evangelize and reform society, so it'd be in the Bible Belt like where we are now. Um, Late 19th century Dutch neo-Calvinists, Abraham Kuyper and some others that followed him. All these demonstrate its traits. Society is to be entirely converted to Christianity uh, as best we can. Business, the arts, professions, family life. Education, government, nothing is outside the purview of Christ's dominion, and all must be reclaimed in his name. Abraham Kuyper, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our uh, human experience over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. So that's, 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 that would be a quote capturing this. It's like we got to go out there and capture the arts, movies, literature, poetry, anything. All knowledge is God's knowledge. We're going we're gonna to get rid of the bad, keep the good, and we're going to compete. We're going to get out there and compete with a better worldview. Um, so that's the book I'm reading from Nancy Percy right now, uh, which I'll give you some of that uh, material next week. So that she would be smack dab in the middle of this. All right, and, and thinks it's wrong for Christians just to retreat. You know, we need to get out there and fight for a better worldview. Christianity is a better worldview, which it is. Uh, we need to show why and how. All right? Again, C.S. Lewis, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. All right, type five. Christ and culture in paradox. Christians live within a strong tension. They believe that God has ordained worldly institutions and that they must work within those institutions as best they can. At the same time, however, they affirm that God's kingdom has penetrated the world here and now. Therefore, under God's providence, they tread a path that can seem crooked, unclear, trying to honor what is divinely ordained in culture, such as family bonds, the rule of law, deference to legitimate authority, but also living out the distinct values of the kingdom of God as best they can without compromise. Hard to do, though. Furthermore, sin mars all of our efforts, evil twists them, God works in mysterious ways behind the scenes. Thus, Christians in this mode are never free of suspicion, yet never lacking hope. Suspicion that apparently good things are compromised by sin in this not yet messianic dispensation. And hope that God nonetheless is working out his good pleasure through all of these means, worldly and churchly, that he has been pleased to ordain and sustain. In this in-between time, even openly evil governments may yet be instituted by God, Romans 13. We are told to pay our taxes, though we know full well that the money will be used at least in part for ungodly purposes. So this is like, this whole thing is confusing. We have to do the best we can. Sin is pervasive, but we see God's goodness out there. It's a paradox. And so we're going to muddle through as best we can. Matt. I don't know if I understand the distinction between four and five. 
Well, you have to ask Niebuhr uh, when you see him. Yeah. Uh, how would you articulate? I'm just, this, is, this is just the summary given by Niebuhr and the examples of it. What do you, what do you think is the difference? Yeah, I would think that the difference might be they both see that some good can be done. One of them rolls up the sleeves and said, this is what we're here for. This is what we're here for. Maybe not necessarily post-mill, but, but I don't think Nancy Percy is post-mill. He's just saying, whatever your job is, if you're a Christian lawyer, you need, your job is to think like a Christian within law, not just think like a Christian on Sunday when you're hearing a sermon. Think like a Christian on Monday when you're looking at your caseload. What would Christ and the Bible say about this or that case? And, try, and, and then openly articulate it energetically. That's type four. Type five is like, yeah, we can do that, but <laughs> what's going to happen? I mean, we're going to meet non-Christians that are you know, our bosses and say, no, you're not doing that, we're doing this. So it's a paradox. I think it's the same, but one of them may be more optimistic and energetic than the other, perhaps, I guess. But these are the five, five types. T.M. Moore basically does the same kind of work in his book uh, and puts, puts a, it in six contemporary Christian approaches to culture. All right? Number one, cultural indifference. The vast majority of contemporary Christians hardly give culture a second thought, at least as it relates to their faith in Christ. It's not, just, it's not that they're not engaged in culture. They just don't think about their involvement all that much. They have simply absorbed the tastes, habits, manners, and cultural preferences of their environment throughout the course of their lives. While most Christians will not condone the more extreme expressions of sensuality, violence, or relativism in the culture at large still, the culture to which they incline, their tastes in fashion and entertainment, their political inclinations, how they spend their time and their money, their topic of conversation, differs little from that of non-Christians. So that's type one. Type two, cultural aversion. Especially for ultra-conservative Christians, culture is a blight to be avoided, an evil in which we must not participate. They think about these things constantly, actually, and are extremely sensitive to the many ways contemporary culture is a threat to their beliefs, morals, and institutions. The best way is to just avoid it, keep away from it, lest it contaminate your faith and that of your children. Type two. Third, cultural trivialization. These are Christians who take a distinctively Christian cultural expression, but they limit the scope of it to popular forms and artifacts, most of which participate or partake sorry, in a tiresome sameness. This includes Christian pop music as well as the Christian bookstore culture, back when there were Christian bookstores. It's amazing how quickly these things go, go out, like Christian television. What's that? Do you guys watch television? Uh, no, we stream. All right, stuff. Anyway. So that would be plaques and posters, knickknacks, jewelry, t-shirts, bumper stickers, plus all kinds of stuff adorned with familiar Bible verses, Christian symbols, cutesy Bible characters, etc. Contemporary Christian music generally imitates worldly music trends, but substitute Christian words addressing a very narrow range of Christian themes. This is cultural trivialization. So they're doing this, but they're not thinking very deeply about it. They're just kind of floating along in a Christian sort of way. Uh, four, cultural accommodation. Many Christians seem to regard it as the duty of the faithful to make room in their beliefs and lifestyles for whatever new expressions of culture may appear. They espouse a pluralistic, non-judgmental approach to culture, live and let live to matters of taste, preference, and practice. They try to find what is good in every era of cultural history and accommodate their lifestyle to it. Interesting. So these would be like your 1 Corinthians 9, have become all things to all people, but without any kind of corresponding fear of it. Uh, maybe a little, but they're not worried about it. Whatever culture is doing, we can use it. All right. Fifth, cultural separation. They seek to promote and construct culture, uh, Christian alternatives to the existing culture, primarily for their own use and that of their fellow Christian family, friends, and neighbors. They adopt forms of alternative schooling to keep their children free from the influence of secularism. They decorate their homes and persons with decidedly Christian artifacts. They create Christian sports leagues and other kinds of association for recreation and ministry within the safe confines of the believing community. Now, this is dated, but you'll understand it. They seek to generate a Christian yellow pages, whatever has now replaced that online. I added that. T.M. Moore wrote his book in the first half of the first decade of the 21st century, so there was still Christian yellow pages. I remember we used to get it delivered to our mailbox. It was on the ground, and it would just lay there in some of our neighbors and just get soaked by rain. Um, you know what I'm talking about, the, the 
yellow pages, the big thick thing. Do they still, I don't think they still put it out. But anyway, you know the idea is um, sorry, Christian version of yellow pages so that only Christian plumbers will work their sinks and their toilets. Uh, they listen only to Christian radio, watch only Christian shows online, etc. Their cultural interests are broader than the cultural trivializers. They seek to protect themselves and their families from the harmful effects of non-Christian culture by providing as wide an array of Christian alternatives as possible so they can live their whole lives within these safe enclaves. So it's very much like the trivializers, only they go deeper and broader, think about it more holistically, and try to create Christian alternatives to everything. Six, uh, culture triumphalism. These Christians expect too much of culture, T.M. Moore says. They believe that by voting for the right candidates, changing laws, suppressing this aspect of culture while promoting that, seeking to impose their own cultural preferences and practices on others through legislative, judicial, and ecclesiastical processes, they will best be able to advance the kingdom of God. They are somewhat seeking uh, a Christian utopia by gaining political control in as many areas as possible in society. So this would be very strong God and country people, uh, et cetera, who are looking for a Christian nation, uh, trying to achieve it by those means. So these are the six according to T.M. Moore. Moore's summary. No one adheres to any of these six models as the exclusive or even self-conscious approach to culture matters. In fact, each of us may find aspects of these Christian approaches in our own practice. We are all somewhat inattentive or indifferent toward the way we use culture, in that we do not give consistently Christian thought to all the many forms and aspects of culture in which we engage. We feel aversion to forms of culture that offend Christian sensibilities. We all enjoy a bit of trivialized Christian culture. We are happy to accommodate aspects of contemporary non-Christian forms of culture that please or satisfy some need. We all practice a kind of cultural separate, uh, separationism at times, indulging our distinctly Christian interests with Christian friends in accept acceptable Christian contexts and ways, just as we all relish a little cultural triumphalism when, quote, our side, end quote, makes a point or appears to gain ground against competing views. Our confusion over culture matters could hardly be more evident. That's at the intro to his book, and he's saying basically, sorry, hence, hence my book. Like, you need my book, because we're all very confused on Christ and culture. So, all right. So, can we really come to a Christian consensus on Christ and culture? How do we best live life in a world enmeshed with unregenerate people? C.S. Lewis said this, What is the good of telling the ships how to steer so as to avoid collisions if, in fact, they, they are such crazy old tubs that they cannot be steered at all? What's the good of drawing up on paper rules for social behavior if we know that, in fact, our greed, cowardice, ill-temper, and self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them? I do not mean for a moment that we ought not to think hard about improvements in our social and economic uh, systems. What I do mean is that all that thinking will be mere moonshine unless we realize that nothing but the courage and unselfishness of individuals is ever going to make any system work properly. It is easy enough to remove the particular kinds of graft or bullying that go on under the present system. But as long as men are twisters or bullies, they will find some new way of carrying on the old game under the new system. You cannot make men good by law, and without good men, you cannot have a good society. Now, lest you think, well, why did you give C.S. Lewis the final word? I could have then brought Nancy Percy and say, oh, yes, C.S. Lewis, I get it, but we should still be out there energetically thinking Christianly about everything we do, and hence the debate. So this is a challenging topic that we will solve in the five more weeks that we have uh, to, to address it. All right, let's close in, uh, in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had to walk through uh, these definitions and the ways that Christians have addressed this in the past. Lord, I pray that we would just be humbled by this topic, that we realize it's too big for us or too hard for us, that we go to you and ask that you give us wisdom. Pray that you continue to guide me as I put these, these talks together and, and as we walk through it and, and really just begin in some ways, not begin but not for the first time, but, but deepen our thinking on this so that we can live a life that's pleasing to you and effective in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.